You're listening to a sermon from the series, Born This Day, an FFC Christmas series in Luke chapter 2. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. It's more than just a day, and surely more than a holiday. But why? What sets Christmas Day apart? The beauty of Christmas Day lies not in what we do or how we do it, not in what we give or how we give it. In fact, its uniqueness does not rest in anything related to us. Christmas Day is precisely Christ's day, the day we celebrate the one who was born to us in the city of David. And who was born that day? No doubt a baby, for sure a savior. Thankfully, the long-awaited one, the promised Christ. Jesus, the Lord. This is our December series this year. It's called Born This Day, and it's taken from Luke chapter 2, in which we're examining and taking a closer look at the different titles given to Jesus Christ when he was born on that day. So we have your Bibles. You open to Luke chapter 2, please. Luke chapter 2. And as you're opening your Bibles there, let me set the table for this morning's um, titles, we'll call it. We're going to be looking at the title, Christ the Lord. All these are drawn from Luke chapter 2, verse 11. But let me set the table for this a bit. Because I think these two titles really uh, are best understood if you kind of have the sense of one of, a, one of our Christmas synonyms. And you say, Todd, what's a Christmas synonym? Well, it begins with the letter W, and the last letter is G, and the middle letters form the word waiting. So I think a Christmas synonym is the word waiting. Now, you're laughing, like you're sitting there thinking, really? Well, let's be honest. Most of us, when we were kids, we could not wait for Christmas Day, right? Or whenever you celebrated opening your gifts, you just couldn't wait for that day. Uh, and if you're a parent, your kids are probably the same way. They, they're always nudging you, can we get an early present? Our kids did this every single year, and we never gave in. We told them, you're not getting the stinking thing, girl. You wait until the 25th, right? And we'd laugh with them. And uh, When I was a, a boy, my sister and her husband are in our church now. They moved here from Tennessee just recently. So she'll verify this, okay? Have accountability here, all right? Uh, we, we usually opened them on Christmas Day. Then we'd go see one of our grandparents, typically. I don't think we were gone on Christmas Day much. But, man, we, we weren't early openers at our home. Usually we got up, we had breakfast. Now, don't get me wrong, me and my two sisters, we were ready to open them crack at dawn. But our family kind of had breakfast first, and then the dreaded, well, let's clean up the kitchen. I'm like, who cares about the kitchen? Throw the dishes away this year, man. Let's just get to the tree, right? Well, our kids, we've pretty much become like five o'clockers. So I remember when they were all little, it'd be like, it wouldn't even be dawn yet. And we'd hear upstairs, you know, feet. Jill and I, after a late Christmas Eve, we're in bed like, can't they sleep till at least six, you know? But they're up. And so we have this little bell we would ring. And it was a real dainty kind of bell. It's called the Christmas bell. They couldn't come downstairs till the bell rung. And uh, that's kind of how we did it. But we did it really early. But here's the thing. Whether it's my home and um, with our kids and there's the bell or whether it was growing up and our mom and dad... Y- even if you were in a hurry and you were waiting, 
No one did anything until the authority spoke. You know what I'm saying? Until the bell rang. Until mom or dad said, okay, now we can go. So even though you were waiting, even though you were kind of anticipating and in a hurry, you still had to wait for that final kind of, let's do it, you know? I ran into Eric Intrican this week at, the, at Walmart, in fact. He's right over here with his family. And, you know, these stories aren't, aren't uh, uh, peculiar to us. Every family has their own waiting stories. A lot of you grin as I share in this. So I was at Walmart. Julie and I ran into Amy and Eric, and um, I said, hey, uh, we're just sharing Christmas. I said, man, I just can't wait till Sunday. He goes, man, I wish it was tomorrow. And he just shared me how he's just anxious, you know. And they're up early, too. In fact, Amy said sometimes like 4 o'clock. He was sharing how they're doing this Christmas now in their new home. And, and, and he just kind of sharing stories like, man, he's up early, ready to get going. I mean, let's just be honest. Christmas and waiting, they go hand in hand, don't they? And you know, it, it's for good reason. Because that first Christmas that was celebrated, they were waiting on their Messiah. The Jews, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, they were waiting for the promised one, the anointed one. This is kind of all contained in the title, Christ the Lord. So let's look at that in verse 11. Can we? You have your Bibles open, Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read all 14 verses. I just want to read the, the primary text we're in this whole month. It's verse 11. I would encourage you as a family to continue to read Luke 2 throughout the month. Here's verse 11 for us. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. We looked at that week one, and we understood that meant that he was a deliverer. One who would forgive our sins and, and handle our deepest and biggest need. So a Savior was born that day. Verse 12 says that he was also a baby. So we learned in week two that a baby was born that day. And this was necessary so he could understand in every aspect what it was like to be human. And yet as the divine substitution for us, he fully embodied a, a personage to die as our sacrifice. So That day a Savior was born, a baby was born, but this Savior who was a baby is called, verse 11, Christ the Lord. Now when you read that, do you just think, well, just another one of the things they call him. Well, let's dive in deeper into these two words, can we? Let's look at two angles. Let's look at the title angle in Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Again, 14 verses comprise the whole text, read through those. But here specifically, verse 11 Let's look at the title angle, and then let's look at the timing angle, okay? So make some notes here. I want to kind of talk to you maybe about, uh, I don't want to say classroom in a classroom way, but I want to kind of give you some information about these two words that kind of appeal to your head for a bit. Then I want to move about a few inches lower and go to your heart for a bit, all right? So hang with me. What What does he mean when he says Christ the Lord? What's involved in that? Understand, first of all, that the titles here refer to the anointed one and the authoritative one. All right? Now, understand, too, that some of you may think, well, Christ was actually his name. But did you know his his name was actually Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth. It wasn't until a little later that he became kind of known as Jesus Christ, used by some of the early apostles. But initially, the Christ was actually a title. And it refers to the fact that he... He was the the one that was anointed and long-awaited, appointed, authoritative. He was the one from God that was foretold of old. And so the word used for that is the word Messiah in the Old Testament. The Greek understanding of Messiah is the word Christ. And so whenever in the New Testament you see the word Christ, you could 
with all correctness, understand that to be Messiah. When they would say Christ, they were thinking, oh, this is the anointed one, the long-awaited one. This is the one the prophets spoke of. Now, when you think of the idea of anointed one, you think of a king, don't you? Much like David was anointed. And so Christ, the Messiah, comes in the line of David as the next king. As such, he is then also Lord because kings are in charge. They're they're ruling, so they have authority. And so I think one of the good ways to see the title angle of the two titles, Christ and Lord, is to understand that really what's meant here is just simply he's king. He's long awaited. He fulfills the prophecies foretold that a king would come in the line of David. And as such, he has authority. So he's called Christ the Lord. That's the title given to him as the fulfillment of of the one who would take the Davidic throne. Some verses that you might want to kind of jot down, we won't look at here in this service, but Psalm 110 speaks of this. Isaiah 32, verse 1 speaks of this. Psalm chapter 2 speaks of this. These are all, um, at least the two Psalms are Messianic Psalms. Isaiah is a prophecy. And they speak of a coming king, a prince, someone who's going to, in in the line of David, rule with justice and This is the one we're waiting on, that God has appointed and anointed. So a little classroom like there, just understand. The word Christ the Lord, that that phrase, has a definite Old Testament kind of prophetic leaning to it. And its title means that an anointed one is now here who's king. There's also, though, a, a timing angle to this. Again, you see it in the text. For unto you is born this day the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What's the timing of, the, of, these, of this title, Christ the Lord? Here we kind of deal with more of the anticipation level, this idea of waiting. Now, what, now watch me here. There is more than just anticipation of a deliverer, of a Savior. There's also a genealogical aspect to their anticipation. For remember, their king was to take the throne of their greatest earthly king David so that's what they were waiting on this is what they had been promised this is what had been prophesied a king would come and so they were anticipating a king but they knew that it had to be in the in the line of David and so there's a genealogical aspect to this that I don't want you to miss when you read Christ the Lord they were waiting on not just a king but a specific kind of king one who would take the throne of his father David so to speak As such, he would then be Lord. And this is what I would call a spiritual, cultural type of anticipation. Now, follow me here historically. In that culture, the Caesars were known as lords. And they actually extracted and demanded worship from their uh, subjects. So when Christ arrived on the scene as the anointed, prophesied, promised king, and he was called Lord, who got nervous? People like Herod. The Caesars of the day. Because they thought, well, this is a threat. So does it now make sense to you why he would have all the boys to and below killed? Because if there's really a long-awaited king arriving, my throne, it may be subject to a coup. But see, Herod misunderstood something. Jesus Christ, the Lord, did not come to take over Herod's throne, did he? He came to actually redeem his father's world. 
He brought a spiritual kingdom. Now, does that mean he's any less of a king? No, which is why at his crucifixion, when asked, are you king of the Jews? He responded, you say correctly, but then he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So we have before us one who is prophesied and promised, a king who has come in the proper line and taking the appropriate throne, but one who's not taking the throne to rule over the world physically yet, one who came at this point to simply be the sacrifice for our sins. He was still anticipated, but I think their cultural anticipation, watch this, I think the Jews' cultural anticipation is one of the reasons they were hindered from seeing his spiritual fulfillment, his actual um, reason for his first coming. They wanted an actual Caesar king, capital K, throne, stallion. Can you get rid of the Romans, please? They wanted something politically, militarily. Jesus instead came as a baby. He did still come as the long-awaited king, but his kingdom was different. He inaugurated it on the earth. He brought God's kingdom to earth. Matthew 11, excuse me, John 11, Matthew 12, they speak that Jesus said very clearly, God's kingdom is here. We're to pray that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. So there's no sense in which Christ is not a king. But he's not a king of, he's not looking to be president of America. He's not looking to be ruler of Russia. He's not looking to own some of the Asian countries. He is king of the world. He has done so by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection. And when he comes, he will then culminate the kingdom he inaugurated as first kingdom. This is all tied up in the title, Christ the Lord, and in the timing of Christ the Lord. He's the long-awaited, anointed, appointed one. He brings to us deliverance and forgiveness. There will be a day in which he will bring his final kingdom. So there's anticipation throughout. So the timing and the titles all speak to us that Christ the Lord is, is the sense of we're waiting for a king. This was true for them, by the way, and it's true for us. Don't lose me here. Hang with me. They were waiting for a king, and he came We as well are waiting for a king, and he will come. It's not a different king, mind you. It is the same one, amen? But this time he's not coming to save us from our sins. He's coming to take us back with him. He did that at his first coming. His second one is strictly for different reasons. So understand, when you see the phrase Christ the Lord, both the title and time he speak, to have a king and us waiting for him. Anticipation is a real root here. Now, in explaining this, I think sometimes it can be difficult to kind of grasp the full meaning of that. That's why I think a flow of a verse is showing this would maybe even speak more fully to this. Let me show you a set of verses that I think will walk you through what I would call a storyline of these two words, of this title. Here's how these words have been used throughout the Bible. And I think you'll begin to see, oh, so the baby born that day, Jesus, when it says he was Christ the Lord... This is kind of how it showed up in history, all right? Here's Daniel 9. This is actually the very first time in the Old Testament that we have the word Messiah mentioned in a future tense. It has been mentioned before, but now in Daniel 9, it's about 6th century B.C., we have the mention of the word Messiah. You can spot it in there, can't you? It's the words, what? Anointed one. 
Here, though, it's mentioned in the future tense. One is coming. So the Jews are like, oh, so there's still a king to come? There's still one who's going to deliver us? Now, I won't get into the timing of all these verses here. That's not my point in this message. Just know that this verse here does prophesy that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, that's the word Messiah. Here he is prophesied and predicted. The next verse says much the same thing. It gives a, some more detail about the time frame, especially his death. Look what it says here. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, an, a Messiah, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So here you have in Daniel the beginning of the prediction, the prophecy that a Messiah is coming. Now watch this. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew, who wrote specifically to Jews, lays out for us who this anointed one is because he connects, you see the word Christ in the latter part of the verse? He connects Christ all the way back to the deportation and then to David and David Abraham. So who is the coming anointed one? It is Christ. There's the word Messiah, the Greek understanding of the Old Testament word Messiah or anointed one. So from Abraham to David 14, from David to deportation 14, deportation to Babylon, and then to Christ 14. This is the genealogical aspect. This is the one they were waiting on. This is the coming anointed one in the line of David, the king, the Christ. Matthew lays it out pretty clearly. Look what happens next. This Christ who was promised is the one that Andrew found. And that word's in quotes. Andrew really found him, but that's how the word's... Kind of, this is the ambiance of the text. He says, he first found his own brother Simon, who's just Peter. And he says to him, we have found the, who? Messiah. Or you could say the Christ or the anointed one. So here's Andrew realizing, wow, there's one that has been prophesied and predicted. We found him. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. And can't you just see, can't you just feel the ambiance and the, and the tense, the sense of this verse, I mean, it's a, it just drips with anticipation, doesn't it? Like, you, you almost hear Andrew like, man, we have found the Messiah. I mean, we read it somewhat blank-faced, like it's just words on a page. But think of the story, maybe the conversation that was around it. The excitement, the discovery. Hey, Peter, guess what? The Messiah, he found him. I mean, you, you, can just, you can just kind of feel like, wow, that's... Andrew was anticipating. He'd been aware of the prophecies. He was, he was, he was um, expecting a king, and here he is. Peter follows, and in what may have been a few years later, perhaps, maybe a few months, he answers Jesus with this statement when confronted. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the, say it with me, Christ. So what is Peter saying there? Notice that he chose the word Christos. Remember, that's the New Testament understanding of Messiah. Peter chose that specifically to make sure that the crowd knew, the disciples knew, that that Jesus knew, I know you're not just a man claiming something. You're the long-awaited coming king who has arrived. You're Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What a great affirmation and, and confession. Now, trace the word Christ. 
from New Testament, excuse me, Daniel, the genealogies, uh, the early apostles. Here's what Peter then preached at Pentecost. This is probably, these are stirring verses here. This is a great conclusion to a message. I, I love the way Peter does it. I could just have this verse all day and just kind of let it just hover over me. It's beautiful. Here's how he concludes his message. He says, let all the house of Israel, he's telling Jews, if you're wondering who this man was you crucified, watch what he says here. You can know for certain. I love that, don't you? I mean, Peter's not suggesting anything. Can we be clear? He's not proposing or inviting. Peter is proclaiming. He says that God has made him, who is him? In the verse, it refers to Jesus whom they crucified. So the man they knew as Jesus who walked on the earth 33 years, who was with them, shoulders and, and hands and feet. The man they saw and knew historically, evidentially as Jesus. Peter says, God has made him, look at the two weeks titles, say it with me, Lord and Christ. And who was born that day according to Luke 2.11? Born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God made him that. When he was born, he was exactly that. Peter now recognizes and affirms the man you knew historically, evidentially, visually as Jesus was actually Christ the Lord. That's who you crucified. Stunning message. Penetrating. Convicting. Peter was aware of it. Paul affirmed this as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So we see from Daniel to Matthew, we see prophecy, genealogy, we see the apostles, we see narrative, we see history, all pointing to the, who was born that day. Yes, there was a baby, and yes, it was a Savior, but it was the long-awaited, appointed, anointed Messiah, Christ, who would authoritatively rule as king. Look how Paul affirms this very thing. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many little g-gods and many little l-lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom all are all things and for whom we exist. And we should push pause there and just admit and say, theologically, God does not exist for us. Let that sit on you for a bit. Let it settle within your bones. He's not your 911, your Christmas Santa. He's not your last ditch effort. You and I exist for God. He's master creator. And we're, so, we're his creation, yes. I hope that every American hears this. This is American Christianity to the T, isn't it? Well, God, what do I need from you today? How can you serve me? And here, though, Paul says, you know, there's one God, and we exist for him. Good works were made so that we would please the Father and glorify him. His maximum glory is his aim. And you are, as John Piper says, most satisfied in him when he is most glorified in you. So we exist for him, and in that very relationship, we find deep satisfaction, yes. But please, let's don't turn this around. God is not on our leash. 
He's not at our disposal. We instead are made for him. And then he says there, and we can push pause now, pass play again. And then he says, there is one Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he combines the words there. He takes the humanity of Jesus, the word Jesus, the name Jesus. Then he takes the, the prophecy aspect of Jesus, which is Christ, the anointed aspect, and then the authoritative aspect, the word Lord. He puts them all together. He says, here's the deal. There is one. He was the one born that day. He's Lord. He's Jesus, and he's Christ. He's Messiah. He's King. Through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So I think you can see from Daniel up through the New Testament epistles. When you read in Luke 2, who was born this day? Christ the Lord. What you're seeing there is both a a timing and a title aspect. that, That they were waiting for a king. And he came in the humanity of a person named Jesus. But within that humanity was the deity of God. And dwelling among us was king of the universe in human flesh. Let's kind of put this in a, in a simple, perhaps, <laughs> good try, right? In a simple, single sentence. What are we saying that the two words, Christ the Lord, what are, the, what is the, what are those titles meaning? Here's a simple way to kind of see it. That Jesus, that's who he was on the earth known as, that was his name, He is the divinely appointed, long-awaited, so that speaks to his prophetic aspect and to his authoritative aspect, to his genealogical aspect. All of this points to that. He's the divinely appointed, long-awaited king who inaugurated God's kingdom on the earth at his first coming. And who will culminate God's kingdom on earth at his second coming. So, church, watch this. Not only were they... Waiting as God's people. What are you now doing as God's people? Say it with me. Waiting. Do you see why behind the phrase, the titles Christ the Lord, is the whole backdrop of a waiting people? And do you see why Christmas is so appropriate for waiting? I mean, it should remind us every single year. Yes, we celebrate Advent. We wait for Christmas But the truth is, we're waiting for something far more important than a calendar day or a rush down the stairs or a Christmas bell or mom or dad to say, you can open presents now. We're actually waiting for the coming of our king. You see, God's people have always been a waiting people. This is what's behind the idea of Christ the Lord. So as the next week unfolds and you read Luke 2, as you gather with your family around the tree perhaps or in the living room by the fireplace, in the kitchen, wherever the hub of your home is, and perhaps you read this chapter with the kids or the grandkids, you come to this phrase, who was born this day? Christ the Lord. I hope you'll think, wow, they waited. They were aware. They, they were expecting and we are as well. This is part of what it means to be God's people. Let me bring even further biblical credence to this idea by a single verse in Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 28. And I love the way the writer here attributes this work to whom? 
Say it with me. Second word in the verse. Christ. Again, I think a specific title or name chosen. Because he's saying, the author's saying, who is it that came and dealt with sins the first time? Who will come again for those who are eagerly waiting? Who is this? He specifically uses the word for anointed one, for Messiah. Christ. And so he says, read this with me. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here we have the two comings of our one king. Here we have the work of Christ the Lord. This is who was born that day. Now I realize this may not be the most question-asking type of message. You're like, man, I hope I got all that, or I'm not sure if I got the title timing thing. But I want to make sure you have an opportunity. Are there any questions you might have about these two titles, Christ and Lord? Anything come in, Ryan? Okay, no questions today. That's two weeks now with no questions. Thank you for the Christmas gift. I appreciate that very much. That's a less stress on me. Well, I don't want to leave you there. As much as I enjoy studying words and our history, and especially when it comes to our beautiful Savior and treasuring His value and worth, looking at His names, it's, I mean, it's a rich exercise that I'm afforded on a weekly basis. So I, I don't minimize what just happened, but I also understand this, that Understanding that, you're like, well, Todd, I'm, I'm leaving here to go to work in a little bit. I got work tomorrow morning. I've got to meet family. Be, I mean, how, how do these titles affect me when I walk out those doors? That's not a bad question to ask. It's okay. Well, let's put some, uh, let's put some flesh on these bones, can we? Let's bring some, watch this now. Let's bring some king size applications to this truth. Because if we are waiting for a king, just as they were waiting for a king, right? What does that mean today? What does it mean for them? What does it mean for us? I think I heard loud and clear from our series survey in the summer that application would do a better job at application, Todd. I'm working really hard. I heard you well. I'm working extra hard to make sure that we, at every message, just bring some, some deeper, more pointed application. You may wish you hadn't have said that one day, but I'm working really hard on that. So can I share with you four king-size apps, ready, that I think we can derive from the, the richness of the title Christ the Lord. First of all, let's rejoice together in this, that God keeps his word. Amen. So trust in God's promises. And there are hundreds in his word And our faithful God will keep every single one of them. In fact, let me just submit to you this with boldness and integrity. If you ever wonder, is God going to keep his word? Christmas is the season that proves it. Because it's the fulfillment of thousands of years of anticipation. In fact, let me say this to you. Christmas is the fulfillment of thousands of years of human doubt. The Israelites cried for years, God, deliver us. Then he chose a virgin, a teenage virgin, in a little town, in a crazy stable. Hey, God, could you give us a king a different way, please? (laughs) But the entire time, what was God doing? God 
was keeping his promise. So I want to encourage you, and I want you to rejoice with me, church, in this today. That as you celebrate Christmas, you're celebrating a God who has faithfully kept his word generation after generation and has no intentions of stopping with yours. God is faithful. Tim Keller writes about this in his book, Hidden Christmas. It's a new book this year. I encourage you to pick it up. It's a good Christmas read, not real long. He writes about God's promises on page 35, and he says this. Listen very carefully. He's he's a, uh, I like the way he nudges us and gets us to think. He says, you cannot judge God by your calendar. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. He may seem to be working very slowly or even to be forgetting his promises. But when his promises come true, and they will come true, he says, they always burst the banks of what you imagined. God's grace virtually never operates on our time frame, on a schedule that we consider reasonable. And I suspect as you hear me encourage you to rejoice in this king-size affirmation and application, you're saying, well, Todd, you don't know my story. I needed God to keep his word yesterday. (laughs) He's 40 minutes late. He's 10 years behind. No, God's not late. He's never early. He's always right on time. It's just sometimes we we, we, we tend to view God through our watch or calendar, don't we? You see, God is not a God that is bound by calendars and watches and schedules. In fact, here's how incredibly awesome God is when it comes to time. That what you think is a thousand years, which, let's be honest, is incomprehensible. Like, I can barely live 70. You know, if you're a teenager, you can't hardly get to 16, right? I mean, Christmas Day can't get here quick enough. But to God, a thousand years is as what? A day. Like, oh, oh just a day. A thousand years. See, time is of no consequence to our God. So so if you think, well, he seems late. He's not late. He's not forgotten. And let's remember what Peter said. Peter reminded those believers that as the last days would draw to their conclusion, and we're in those, by the way, we have been since Pentecost, as the last days draw to their conclusion, there would be those who would say, hey, your God has fallen asleep. And they'll mock you and they'll ridicule you. They'll say, your God's forgotten his promises. But God is not slow concerning his promise. But instead, he's long-suffering and he's patient so that all would come to repentance. Amen? In fact, can I just press pause again here and ask you are you one of the ones that God is waiting on I use that as an anthropomorphism you know I'm using a human characteristic to describe God's actions but but is God's patience is, is all of that happening so that you could finally repent and become a believer maybe you came in this morning thinking well I don't know why I'm going to church this Christmas I should just go I'm like what Steve talked about. I'm kind of that Christmas Easter guy, Christmas Easter girl. Maybe God brought you here just divinely, sovereignly on purpose to let you hear the good news that Christ the Lord has come and is king 
on a kingdom that matters far greater than who's president or ruler of anything on this earth. He's the king of our hearts and he's forgiven our sins by what he did on the cross. And if you would just believe in Jesus Christ the Lord today, your sins could be forgiven. If that's you this morning, what are you waiting on? Amen. Trust Jesus today. Let God save you. That's exactly why God is waiting so that all would come to repentance. I just want to encourage you. One of the applications we get from this single verse is that God keeps his word. Amen, church? Let me rush through three more here briefly. We also can see this as a king's application, that God works in and over the natural course of time, so trust his providence. Now, while the virgin birth was a miracle, no doubt, and it's fundamental to our theology, there is much in Luke 2 and the Christmas story that's very natural, a census by a pagan ruler, a crowded, quote-unquote, hotel. All these things worked under God's control for his reasons. And if you were to back the story up, even to the Israelites' exile and captivity, you can move the story forward to the book of Acts and see how the church was planted and You'd find that that though there were supernatural moments, without a doubt, and I'm not at all diminishing that, I would be happy to say to you, though, this, that there's also much providential activity as well. What do you mean by providential activity? Providence is the theological concept that God works and accomplishes purposes through normal events. I'll give you an example. J-O-B. What's that? Don't say Job. Say, you know, that a job is God's providential means to meet your needs. So, when you read that my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, he may not be speaking about a check in the mail while you're watching TV. He may be speaking about a J-O-B. A job. Imagine that, right? It's a providential means by which God accomplishes his purposes. I think about how I met Julie. It was in a college class... I mean, it was, it was just providential. I wasn't, you know, just laying in bed one night and had a dream and a vision, and I would go to Michigan and, and you know, have a, some, some star search and find this one girl, and I was actually going to class, and I saw her, and I said, that's a hot chick. I need to ask her out. <laughs> so I did, and we dated, and we got married. I mean, was God in that? Yes. Was it supernatural if I could be this transparent? No. It was actually providential. God used normal, ordinary means to accomplish his purpose. And the same is true in your life. I'm not diminishing or dismissing the supernatural. I'm simply saying, don't you diminish or dismiss the providential. And often when we're waiting on God, and when we're trusting him, we tend to only want the supernatural, don't we? Can we just be frank here? And God may be in heaven right now, just nudging you and saying, Vince, just trust me. I know that job loss is not what you thought and planned, but I'm working something more important, and just trust my providence in the normal course of your life. I've got this for you. Maybe it's an illness, a death. I'm going to see Zach over here. been in ICU in New York for, what, 10 days at least or more? I know of Rennell, lost her grandpa Friday in death. There's other folks here who are dealing with 
sickness and illness. There were other families in our church who had tragedy. Can I say to you that in both tragedy and triumph, normal events are often where God does his best work. Do not dismiss the hand of God just because it doesn't seem like something boisterous or magnanimous every time. He works in the normal course of events over a long period of time to do what? Keep his promise to his people. I could camp on these, I won't. Third, King Signs application. God uses waiting as one of his best tools of sanctification. Now here, don't say amen, just instead groan inwardly, okay? We are not trained to wait, we don't like to wait, and yet it is one of God's best tools. So as I prompt you to trust God, by the way, that's the theme here, have you noticed? Everything ends with trusting God. Trust Him, uh, His promises, trust His providence, trust Him patiently. There's different ways to say it. I'm just simply urging you in this Christmas season that in light of Luke 2, in light of who Jesus is and who He is, he, he, he fulfills every promise of the Messiah. He's the king. Trust him. And as you do that, understand, he's going to make you more like himself. He's going to work his plan in you over the course of time. So trust him patiently. Waiting is the hardest part, but it's often the best part. Last application here. God commands obedience while we wait. So trust him proactively. And notice what I didn't say there. I didn't say that God asks us to obey. And this may hit you wrongly. You may not like this. and You'll get over it if you don't. But God is king. Kings don't ask. This is why the Bible says that God commands men everywhere to repent. This is why God leaves his church. Things to do while we wait for him. You see, what's at stake here, listen very carefully, is the, is the issue of who's on the throne of your life. And have you usurped authority that's not yours? Have you been guilty? Have I been guilty of self-assertion, self-determination, when actually at Christmas, it is the time in which self-denial should be most apparent. And after all, Christ left the glories of heaven, came as a man, and then humbled himself as a servant and took upon himself human flesh and then died the death of crucifixion. Mary and Joseph embraced their role, which initially probably meant mockery, ridicule. And so when we see that Christ the Lord has come, then when he asks us of things, when he says, this is what I want you to do, we don't respond with like, hey, thanks for the advice. Um, in fact, let me just be this transparent and bold with you. I don't think Jesus gives advice. I think Jesus gives commands. And he calls his followers to lay down their life for him. He calls his followers to lose their life for his sake. He calls his followers to deny theirself and follow him. This is what we do. And so let me ask you, are you trusting God proactively? 
Is your trust always showing up as a verb? By the way, trust always shows up as a verb. Is yours? Because you know God keeps his word, and though waiting seems difficult, and though often it seems like he's, he's not working on my time frame, I will still do what he asks me to do, what he commands me to do, because he is Christ the Lord. That's my admonition to you this morning. To rejoice in his sovereignty and his promise-keeping faithfulness. To trust his providence. To patiently undergo his waiting hand. And as you do all that, to work fervently for him. Obeying everything he's asked us to do. After all, he is Christ the Lord. Amen. I think a lot of this resonates in that Christmas song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We're going to sing it here for a little bit. As we do and as you think about it, I want you to just again think, yes, this is what we do. God's people are awaiting people. And as we wait, we'll be obedient. We'll trust. You'll hear the song played behind you. You'll get the elements at some point. Maybe you'll hum it. Maybe you'll know the words. You'll see some lyrics behind us. Maybe you'll sing some of those. But will you just begin to kind of get into the Advent mood. In fact, can I just say to you what I've said already in in a few short ways is that I don't think we should just be in Advent mood for a few weeks. I think we're in perpetual Advent. We're not just waiting for December 25th. We're not just remembering their waiting. We are actually waiting for our coming King. We are always waiting. And so use this song to kind of get you in the mode that when January comes, it's not back to the grindstone. It's not back to my way of life. It's still Lord, you are still coming. We are still waiting for Christ the Lord. May God sink this deeply into our hearts and teach us what it means to wait as an obedient people for our coming King. Let's pray.